This is a strange journey. Where we're headed is not yet clear. For the community to carry on, change is the new normal and being adaptive is the only strategy that works. Those words, true today, could have been written about the communities described in the Acts of the Apostles, which tells the story of a people of faith struggling to keep up with the Holy Spirit in rapidly changing and unsettled times. This fall, we pastors of Second Presbyterian Church are offering a sermon series on Acts called Catching Up with the Spirit. We invite you to join us during this season of change as we seek guidance from the text to follow God's lead, trusting God continues to work in, through, and alongside God's people to bring healing and wholeness to everyone. Join us as we seek to catch up with the Spirit. Let us pray. Holy God, may our ears be open as they were in a room in Jerusalem so many years ago, that we might hear a fresh word of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I do not have the preaching chops to explain how significant is our passage from Acts. As far as the New Testament goes, stories of Jesus' life or the parables that he tells are far more familiar than this story about a council meeting held in Jerusalem. But what happens at that meeting shapes the whole future of the church. That the Christian church today includes people of all colors and all nationalities begins here, at least organizationally. That's the historical significance of this passage. What this meeting also speaks to is this universal human experience where there is tension when separate cultures try to coexist. Our passage looks at this tension and does so from the perspective of the culture that has the upper hand. Think of West Germany after the Berlin Wall comes down. Does this strong country with a thriving economy accept a merger with East Germany, which had evolved in such a different and weaker direction in the past 46 years since the war ended? Think of white Southern leaders in business, politics, and social life after the Civil War ended. How are they going to deal with all these newly freed slaves who are now citizens Integrate or segregate, welcome or oppose, invite into homes or clubs, or post signs indicating where people belong. Think of a majority party considering a minor party and considering legislation and passing it. Or Israel concerning Palestinians. Or a socially conservative and happy family of 50 years ago considering how to relate to a relative or family member who they learn is gay or an affluent church that has homeless visitors. In each case, a logically coherent and time-tested way of being is being confronted by a radically different way of seeing and being. And what do you do? Fight? Stay out of each other's way? Compromise? Accommodate? It is to these challenges that our passage speaks. When I read the minutes of a meeting held in Jerusalem, you'll hear how the answers that they come up with are not obvious, that there is validity in holding firm and giving way, and that often the best resolution does not come because of manuals, but because of ears and hearts. Listen as I read the minutes. 
and listen for the word of God. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and in cleansing their hearts by faith, he made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and they will too. The whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, My brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the dwelling of David which has fallen from its ruins. I will rebuild it, and I will set it up so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord who has been making these things known from long ago. Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and for whatever has been strangled and from blood. For in every city, every generation past, Moses has had those who proclaim him, for he has read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. The minutes go on to tell of a letter that the council writes to send to Gentile followers of Jesus to explain the decisions and make requests. I'll get to those later. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to be in the room where it happens, sings Aaron Burr in the musical Hamilton. Well, if we could go back in time, I think we would all like to be in this room in Jerusalem where history-altering decisions are made. One bonus of doing this would be celebrity sightings. The original disciples would be there, those who still survive, 
only they might look different than we would imagine. The average lifespan in this time is about 35 years old, and the disciples are at least that age, given that the Jerusalem Council takes place 15 to 25 years after the crucifixion. Even taking into account the high mortality rate that brings the average down, these disciples are still at an age where they might understandably care very much about the legacy that they are going to leave behind. And here's another thing. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, older people get set in their ways. Yes, these Jewish disciples have been leading a new movement, but they are quite happy within their Jewish faith, and they understandably would like to share the blessings of their faith with others. Who could blame them if they would like to keep some things, important and meaningful things, from changing? They might feel especially this way because things have been changing so much already. The word church has not yet been used, and certainly there is no such thing yet as a separate, organized religion called Christianity, but the numbers of those who want to join others to follow Jesus is exploding. This growth has been a historical miracle. This is not a protest movement inspired by a martyrdom. Yes, Jewish and Roman leaders colluded to have Jesus crucified, but this movement does not have revenge as its motive or the overthrow of a reigning power as its goal. But make no mistake, it is a liberation movement. They seek spiritual liberation of souls from sin and moral liberation for the poor and oppressed. And they are unimpressed now by all the claims made by King Herod and recent Roman emperors that they are gods. That's silly now. They'll pay their taxes, yes. They'll be good citizens, but their devotion is to Jesus. And their joy comes in the sharing of resources within their community so that everyone's needs are met. Because now they feel like they are a colony of a different kingdom that last far longer than ones on this earth. And in fact, by the way, they are now famous for making sure that everyone in their community is taken care of. It is a beautiful moment in history. There's much to praise and preserve. But I need to be careful not to oversell this beautiful moment because it is not a perfect moment. I mean, what moment in human history ever is? It turns out that what is beautiful can be hard. Realistically, practically, how do you live out this beautiful vision where there is no Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free? Answering that question is what is on the agenda for this meeting in Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas have been border-crossing missionaries. They have gone to Gentile places like Pisidia, Lydia, and Antioch, Iconium. So far, when they've gone to these Gentile towns and cities, they've gone straight to the synagogues because what they want to do is they want to talk to Jews about Jesus. But Gentiles are overhearing, they are listening in, and they want to know more. And Paul and Barnabas don't hold back, but witness to them too. And many Gentiles are being converted. They want to be followers of Jesus too. Now, some Jewish followers of Jesus don't know how to deal with this. 
A minister friend of mine served a church one time, went to a church, and they got excited about the new fresh chapter of ministry, and it started just bringing in all kinds of new members, packing the sanctuary, and he was shocked one Sunday to learn that one of his older and most devout members was standing at the entrance of the parking lot asking visitors to turn around and go find another church because this one had enough new members. Well, some devout and loyal Jewish Christians actually follow behind Paul and Barnabas and try to do something of the same. They go to the Gentile converts basically saying, we don't need Gentiles to follow Jesus. We need Jews. So yes, you can follow Jesus, but you need first to convert. Well, this doesn't go down well with Paul and Barnabas, and it certainly does not go down well with Gentile converts. Because here's the tricky thing about God's unconditional love, is that you end up actually believing that God loves you for the way you are. And why be told that and then to be told that you are to become something that you are not? So the meeting is called, and Paul and Barnabas travel to Jerusalem. Now, I think I just gave away that the leaders in Jerusalem end up making accommodation. They end up compromising, and that's true. That's what happens. That's what is beautiful. But jumping to that conclusion is not really being fair to where the Jewish Christians are coming from, where particularly those Pharisees are coming from. And in fact, I identify with the Pharisees in that room more than anyone else in that room, and certainly more than the recent Gentile converts. That might sound odd, because I'm a Gentile. I'm a descendant of Scots, Irish, and English. I am so pale a Gentile that I put on sunscreen as if it were liquid clothing. But I'm not talking about details. I am talking about type. I'm talking about being the kind of person who loves tradition, who loves the faith that I have inherited, who loves the churches that I've been a part of because I felt that those churches loved me. By personality, I am not someone who automatically thinks something new is something better or who thinks every new trend is a step forward and not a step back. No, in personality, I am more like the Pharisees in that room. Yes, historically, there were graceless, overly legalistic Pharisees who gave Jesus fits just like there are graceless, Calvinistic Presbyterians today. But the Pharisees in this room in Jerusalem, they're among those that history tells us, they are among the thousands of Pharisees who became early followers of Jesus. And they do so because they care about what I care about. They love their scriptures, and they know how Jesus taught them, and they love how he interpreted them, and so do I. They see Jesus as the revelation of the God of creation, the fulfillment of the Jewish law, the fulfillment of the law of the Ten Commandments, and the one foretold by the prophets, and so do I. They see Jesus as the shepherd king who puts the interest of his people before his own, and so do I. 
They see all people as having a direct relationship with God. They had their own version of the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. And they saw Jesus as giving everyone the opportunity to have this personal relationship with God. And so do I. And you can hear how Jewish are all those statements. Do you hear me? I'm not saying that I identify with those Pharisees as Jews, but I identify with their wanting to protect what has nurtured and shaped them as a people of faith. I know how I came to faith as an Anderson and as a Presbyterian. I love the way that Second Presbyterian Church has figured out how to be the church. And in my family ways and in my church ways, I have experienced ways to honor God. So I can understand these Pharisees who are Jews who have come to know Jesus and who want Gentiles to become Jews so that they can really come to know Jesus. I mean, wouldn't the Lord's Supper be so much more meaningful if you could know and experience what a Seder feast is all about? And those Gentiles, they know all about kings, but what if they knew how Jews have been looking for the Messiah and what they mean by that? And they celebrate Jesus as God, those Gentiles, but wouldn't it be wonderful if they took part in the Jewish celebrations of God? Yeah, I get it. I think it would be wonderful if others could come to an Anderson family reunion and join one of our traditions, like our evening of music. Or be in my church where we read the names of loved ones lost on All Saints Sunday and have children rave palms on Palm Sunday or portray biblical characters on Christmas Eve or when we have a picnic outside on the first Sunday of June. We have gotten to know God in those times. It's shaped who we are. And we want to preserve it. And through the ages, Christians have wanted people of other faith to be Christian. Roman Catholics have wanted Christians to be Catholic. Protestants have wanted Christians to be Protestants. Baptists have wanted Christians to be Baptists. And certainly as a kid, I wanted all Christians to be Presbyterian. Why would you not want to be, I thought. There have been more than a few along the way who went even so far as to say that if you didn't become what they were, you were going straight to hell. Now, of course, that's going too far. But I'm saying that I understand the spirit of those who want others to come to know Jesus the way they have come to know Jesus. But funny thing, people who are attracted to Jesus and want to be like him don't all want to be like me. Imagine that. I mean, why wouldn't everyone want to be someone who reads commentaries? who doesn't understand labyrinths, who dresses up for church and enjoys it every single Sunday and every single Christmas Eve goes to every single service because I actually enjoy going to every single service and someone who vacations with other ministers. What's more fun than that? But everybody who loves Jesus doesn't love to do all that. And those early Gentiles who want to be like Jesus don't all want to be like Jews. When they heard Paul and Barnabas witness to the gospel of grace, they felt liberated. 
to come to know a God where sins can be forgiven, where compassion is power, and where reconciliation with enemies is a real possibility, well, it thrilled them. It gave them a vision of the world as it is meant to be, and where they actually can see that it can be when justice is known and mercy is shown. But they also believe that Jesus can help them become their best Gentile selves. Many love so much of what it means to be a Gentile. They love their shellfish and their meat medium rare. They love their families and want to see them when they gather for those Gentile holidays. And some are Roman citizens who want to remain Roman citizens because they don't want to surrender its privileges, perks, or rights. So here in this room, there is the tension between those Jews who love Jesus and those Gentiles who love Jesus but don't want to be Jews. Are they going to be two communities in one movement? Or are they going to break apart? I wish all church stories would end as well as this one, but this community refuses to break. As I said before, it is a beautiful moment. By beautiful, I don't mean pure, pristine, spotless, or perfect. Because actually what happens is very messy, very nitty-gritty. It's human. It's imperfect. It involves compromise on both sides. But messy can be beautiful when we remember to celebrate what is possible rather than wait for what is ideal. What is especially beautiful is that those who have the upper hand surrender the most. That does not always happen. The majority in this room listen to the voices of the minority. They listen to the stories Paul and Barnabas tell about the Holy Spirit coming into these Gentile lives, and they recognize in those stories of people who are very different from them, they recognize the work of the very same Holy Spirit that first spoke to their own hearts and lives and claimed them. And because they see the Holy Spirit moving, they decide that they can't stand in the way. This does not mean that they surrender everything. In fact, they have some conditions so that they can move forward. They need to insist on some things that they see as critical in this moment of time. For instance, yes, the Gentiles can keep a Gentile diet, but please, please, please refrain from eating meat with blood in it, especially in front of other Jews and certainly not meet dedicated to other gods at those Gentile holidays that they still want to attend with their families. The Gentiles don't have to keep all those holiness rules that are in place to keep Jews Jewish, but they simply must. They must keep those ethical commands that are about being moral and good in this world, those critical commands like not lying, not cheating customers, not breaking up families, doing justice, showing compassion. And this movement is about taking care of people. And so they ask the Gentiles to help out with mission work and send an offering for the poor in this crowded city of Jerusalem. 
And finally, they recognized that churches in Jerusalem and churches in far away Gentile places are not going to look alike. They're going to be different. And so at this meeting, they charge Paul and Barnabas to focus on those Gentile churches that are going to look Gentile while they focus on Jerusalem churches that are going to look Jewish. But they're going to remain one movement. The solution is not perfect, but it is a beautiful miracle. I am of the school of Christian realism that celebrates the imperfect when there is evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in spite of human limitations. What I see and celebrate in this meeting is love. The Jews in Jerusalem somehow found it within themselves not to settle for the love of their own people, but surrender to a love that creates people. That's a great way to describe the work of the Holy Spirit. God's love sees us and claims us as we are, liberating us to love others as they are, and making way for the possibility that we might become something beautiful together. May our church and may our nation remember to do the same. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.